God's word in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. She's got it. He knows what it takes. They have it all together. What is it that they have that makes them a success? What do they have or what have they done with their life that makes them get on the front of the magazine or be interviewed and asked, how they achieved their success. What would you define as a successful life? And what would be a complete waste of a life? On a windy May 20th, 2000, in Memphis, Tennessee, a much younger looking John Piper spoke to the audience of the Passion Conference. He said, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80. Single all her life, she poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And then he asked, is that a tragedy? I'll read to you from Reader's Digest, he said, what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy, Piper says. And people today are spending billions to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. That sermon shook many people. It shook me because in each of us, is the desire to be on that boat. It's the desire to retire, to have nothing to do and do, just relax, have fun, and serve ourselves. To have the American dream of comfort, luxury, be called a success. To relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Yet Jesus warns this morning, if that is all we're concerned about, then we are worse than unsuccessful. We are fools. This morning we have Jesus' words before us 
And really, they're asking us two questions. First, in verses 13 through 15, where are you looking for life? Are you looking for life in all the wrong places? And then, verses 16 through 21, what are you working for? Are you working for the weekend or something greater? But first, in verses 13 through 15, we have Jesus' words. Now, you need to remember the context because all of this began in chapter 12, verse 1, where thousands of people were gathering to him. And there's shouts with Jesus. And even that goes back. It's still the same day where Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And calling Jesus teacher, this man asked Jesus to tell his brother to share the inheritance with him. Now, on some level, this man is doing something good. He's honoring Jesus. He's calling him teacher. And yet there's this tragic reality that his family is being ripped apart over splitting an inheritance. Sadly, the same tragedy has struck many families since. The saying goes, where there's a will, there's a war. Jesus, though, responds to the man by asking, who made you judge, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Now, even the man's question shows that he wasn't really looking for fair arbitration because he wants Jesus to come take a side and tell my brother to give me more. And then Jesus continues by warning the crowd, not just the man, he warns the crowd to watch out and be on their guard against all forms of covetousness or greed. Now we need to be clear what this word means. It is conveying the idea of an insatiable love for possessions, for money. Now this is not saying you can't have desires. That's the teaching of Buddhism. Even some political views today, well, you shouldn't really desire things. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying greed is not merely desiring, but desire that can never be satisfied. An unquenchable thirst for more, more, more. A survey was done not too long ago in which they asked the people, what would you do to get $10 million? And over two-thirds agreed that they would do many of these things. But here, 3% would put their children up for adoption to get $10 million. 7% would kill a stranger. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 16% would leave their spouses. 23% would be a prostitute for a week. 25% would abandon their entire family. And another 25% would abandon their church. The love of money, says Paul, is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, the unquenchable thirst leads for more and it leads to ugly, sinful actions. James 4, 1-2 says, What is it that causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, coveting, greeting it, leads to relational breakdown. You know, families, as we've seen, battling over inheritances. Your marriages, typically one of the most common stressors is the money. And almost always one of the leading causes of divorce is money. Who gets to control who spends it? Who gets to spend more? Who has the power of the purse? Greed leads to false teaching and worship. 2 Peter 2.3 And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You see, covetousness is ultimately worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It says, look, if I have this thing, then my life will be perfect. And it's saying, what has been made satisfies, not the one who made it. Greed in our country has led to massive credit card debt and a host of bills to be paid to keep up with what everyone else has. Greed so greatly dishonors God and hurts us that Paul writes in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And we often focus on the dangers of sexual sin, but we rarely see the danger of greed. You know, men and women will guiltily come weeping about how they've had an affair or how they've wandered and become addicted to certain things online. But few come in weeping over their greed, over their lust to get more. You know, we confess to partners, look, I'm struggling with lust. But we don't say, hey, will you pray for me? I'm really struggling with greed. Accountability partners ask us how we're doing and monitor our online activities with covenant eyes. But we don't have them monitor our Amazon account. Now, partially this happens because of the obvious fact that, look, sexual sin is very obvious. You either did it or you didn't. But when is greed greed? Greed doesn't have a clear marker. I was just greedy. You either stole the cookie or you didn't steal a cookie. The cookie's missing. You have chocolate on your face and crumbs on your shirt. Pretty sure you stole a cookie. You have a new phone. You have a new phone. Did you get a new phone because your old one broke or because you're caught up with greed? You have a brand name shirt. Well, did you get it because it was on clearance and the best one in the store and you needed one? Or because you want everyone to think, I have a name brand shirt? We don't know. Greed doesn't present to us a clear, here I am, I'm greed. And so we are being called by Jesus when he says to watch out for greed, to be attentive to our motivations. Why do I want the new phone? Why do I need a new shirt? And you may need them both, but we have to question. Greed deals not so much with what you have, but rather, what has you? Do you own a possession, or are your possessions owning you? It's to ask ourselves questions. Well, how would I feel if I lost some of my stuff? Do I have to have new and better things to be happy? If something gets damaged, do I blow up in anger or not? Will I sacrifice my family relationships to get my share of the inheritance? Now, the proper response to these questions is not that we don't care at all. God made us stewards of possessions, and we should delight in what he's given us. We should be sad when something decays or gets ruined. There's nothing wrong with that. However, honoring God means that we don't think that the possessions are greater than Him. By honoring Him, we don't denigrate it. We give Him thanks for it. And yet it keeps them in proper perspective where we realize the greatest joy is the giver and not the gift. Our greatest sorrow should stem not from not having possessions, but from our sin. 
Sorrow when we see how tightly our fists are clenched around our possessions when we realize opportunities to share. To be concerned with how smug and superior we can feel when we see someone with an older car and go, thankful my car is a lot nicer than that. And go, oh, that's hideous that I would think that. Jesus warns us, watch out for greed and covetousness. Our hearts wander and seek delight, comfort in our possessions and our things. And Paul is saying, look, this shouldn't even be named among you. This is just as serious as sexual sin. And Jesus is warning us here, be vigilant, fight against greed. We even see how serious this is by how quickly it distracts us from what matters. Just consider the context. Jesus, in the verses right before this, in the story here, he just warned them, look, everything you've ever done in your life, everything you've ever said is going to be revealed. You're going to have to give an account for that. One day, you'll either be confessed by me before the Father or denied by me. You could sin against the Holy Spirit. You're going to be brought before trials, and you're going to have to give account. You might even die for me. And as soon as Jesus pauses, somebody goes, hey, but... Can you help me get my share of the inheritance? Do you face palm and shake your head or do you scream? It's like you take your parents, don't take your parents, take your kids hiking. And as you're getting there, you're driving to the place, you say, hey kids, we're going to have a great time, but you really got to watch out. There's poison ivy, it looks like this, and you really hate it. And we know there's snakes in this area, so you got to watch where you step and where you sit. And in some places we go, there's going to be cliffs. So you've got to be very careful. I don't want you running and playing. And you pause and they go, how come they got more whipped cream than I did on the ice cream last night? And you just want to scream and go, are you listening? I just told you of three ways in which you could potentially be very seriously hurt or die. And all you can think about is, last night, they got a little more whipped cream than I did. That's not fair. Jesus just told these people, heaven and hell is before you. Eternal life eternal death. Can I get more of the inheritance, Jesus? That's really what I'm concerned about right now. Greed has distracted this man from what truly matters. He has completely been distorted from reality. Greed is basically like a carnival mirror. It warps everything that what should be slim now looks fat, and what should be fat now looks slim. Greed gives us a false view of the world. Greed says, The one who dies with the most toys wins, right? And Jesus says, no. The one's life is not found in the abundance of one's possessions. And that opens the question then, well, what is life? You know, the problem is people are often looking for life, or if you like, love, in all the wrong places. They're looking for satisfaction in someone or something that's, a created being. That when they find this ultimate thing, when they find the ultimate one, then life will be complete. I will have it all. When in fact, all of creation is pointing to the fact that there's only one, the creator of all things, who is going to satisfy us. And Jesus himself declares, I am the way, the truth, the life. He will say in John 17:3, this is eternal life that they know You. That is life, knowing God. And yet, while Jesus is declaring this again, this man is saying, but what about my stuff? 
And so Jesus turns to the crowd and says, watch out for greed. And we need to realize, you are not what you possess. You are sold the lie that having the cutest outfit, having the nicest shoes, having the newer car, the bigger house, a larger TV, or to bring it down, more Legos, another game system, another game, if I can just have that, then life will be great. And so we have to be on our guard. Even parents, we have to be on guard. How do we respond to our children's request, or could we say demands, for more? Now there's nothing wrong on a birthday, on Christmas morning, to see their face light up as they open that gift. And they go, oh, this is what I wanted. That's a wonderful gift God has given us that we can have with our children. Yet, hear these words of warning from Ted Tripp in his excellent book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. He writes, as parents, we can often pander to their desires and wishes. We teach them to find their soul's delight in going places and doing things. We attempt to satisfy their lust for excitement. We give them material things and take delight in their delight of possessions. Then we hope that somewhere down the line they'll learn a life worthy of living is found only in knowing and serving God. Well, if we're leading everything this way, don't expect they'll end up over here. Now again, that doesn't mean you can't give a nice gift to your child, but are you filling their life with this event, this thing, this is it. Dad is happy when his car is clean and you don't mess with it. That's the life. And we have to say, what are we conveying? Or singles, will life finally be complete when you're married, when you find the one? If you need the one to fulfill you, then you'll never be fulfilled. Kevin DeYoung aptly writes, You completely complete me may sound magically romantic, but it's not true. Yes, men and women are designed to rely on one another in marriage. However, the biblical formula for marriage is not half a person plus half a person equals one completed puzzle of a person. Genesis math says one plus one equals one, because the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus, wanting to show them the danger of this greed, is now going to give them a parable to illustrate this truth. And that's our next section, verses 16 through 21. Because he's asking them, what are you working for? Are you working for the weekend? And Jesus illustrates it by this parable of a rich man. And this rich man's land produced a bumper crop or crops. Now the word for land is really much broader. It refers to a region. So this man's very wealthy. He has a region of land and he has great wealth. And then he has these crops come in and the man sat down and thinks, well, what should I do with all this? So he finally decides, well, I'll do four things. First, I'm going to destroy those meager small barns. And second, I'll build larger ones in their place. And then third, I'll gather all my crops and goods. And then fourth and finally, now that I have it all stored up, I'll say, soul, you have so much stuff, you can have a long retirement. Just kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. And many of us, if we're honest, are a little bit envious. And now that's the point of Jesus' parables. Jesus' parables almost always had some sort of shock value. That what normally would be seen as good, Jesus shows, is not. And here, 
As the people hear of this man, they'd be thinking, well, that's a wonderful life. That's great. You know, we can change the story and maybe make it a little more modern. The man started small. He went off to college and lived on a shoestring budget, married his high school sweetheart, and started working for a company. After a few years, he went off on his own and started his own company, and through hard work, sacrifice, dedication, the company grew and grew. And then one day, unexpectedly, a major international company came in and offered him an offer for the business he couldn't refuse. He's the type of man that everyone would ask for advice and go, you need to listen to him. He's no fool. And he now goes, well, you know what? I'm 50 years old. I'm not going to work myself to death. I'm just going to retire. So the man, he sells the company, invites all his friends and family over, have a wonderful feast there on his house that he already had on the golf course, overlooking the 18th hole. And he's like, now, this is it. I'm going to just relax with my wife. We'll be able to go out to the ranch we own a little bit more often. We've had all these vacations around the world we've wanted to go to. We're just going to relax. We're going to eat, drink. We're going to be merry. And as the party wraps up, everyone shakes his hand, shakes his wife's hand, says, oh, we're so happy for you. And a little bit jealous of you. And we hope everything goes great. And his wife says, oh, honey, this is wonderful. I'm looking forward to this. And he goes, oh, yeah. You go ahead and go to bed. I'll be up there in a few minutes. And he goes back on the back porch overlooking the golf course. It's like, you know, I'm just, oh, I've made it. This is it. Where are we going next? Let me look at the pictures on my phone. And he starts flipping. And all of a sudden, he starts sweating. And his chest tightens. And he collapses. And the next morning, his wife finds him dead on the back porch. And now most of us, we go, oh, that's so sad. But I kind of wish I was him. Because that'd be it. 50 done working. I can travel wherever I want. I can visit the grandkids as much as I want. I never have to think about money again. That's the life. And yet Jesus looks and goes, that man is a fool. You know, a fool is biblical language, not for someone who isn't intelligent, but someone who doesn't live in reference to God. And here, this man lived without the fear of God, without living a reference to God, in three ways. First, the man did not consider God in regards to his control, or who controlled his life. Look at the words he uses. I have many years. He had his future planned out. It was his plans. And yet, it's God's plans that determined what would happen. Because that very night, he demanded he come and give an account. And thus, who's going to enjoy all those goods? He won't get to. The only thing he'll take with him is his soul, not a single other possession. Dale Davies recounted the story of three apprentice demons going out for the first time on their missions, and the devil wants to interact with them and go, well, how are you all going to do this? And the first one goes, well, I'm going to tell them there's no God. And the devil goes, well, that won't work. The knowledge of God is written on their heart. And the second apprentice demon goes, well, I'm going to tell them there's no hell. And the devil goes, well, that's not going to work either because they've had the remorse of hell and seen horrible things in life. They know there's something coming. And the third one says, I'll tell them they have more time. There's no hurry. And the devil said, tell them that message and you will ruin millions. 
There's no hurry. I can do it tomorrow. I have control over my future. I'll get serious about God and His plans later, but today I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, wisdom realizes we don't know the number of our days, but we know the one who does. And so we're going to live in reference to him. Kathy Zicklow, a friend, church member in Columbus, Ohio, in her 50s, goes to watch her grandkids, takes them out, the oldest two, takes them to school, comes back, tells the youngest grandchild, just going to take a nap. Never wakes up again. Clay Robinson, friend from growing up, prime of life, doing very well, tells family goodnight. Home intruder comes in that night. As he seeks to protect his family, he's shot. Doesn't make it to the next day. There's no guarantee for tomorrow. There's no guarantee even for the rest of today. And I'm sure if we opened up, many of you could also share tragic stories of people going along, normal events of life, having all these plans in front of them, and that day, called to give an account. I can take care of that later. I have plans. I'm going to do all this with my life, and then that, and then this thing, and then that thing over there. And God says, you fool, you'll only do what I allow. Which leads to the second foolish way of this man, for he did not consider God as the ultimate judge of life. He did not consider that he'd have to stand before God and give an account. You know, we often say, what's my money? I can do with it whatever I want. Well, that is a lie. We're stewards. We will have to give an account to God. We have ultimate ownership over nothing. Yet this man lived as though he had it. And he had it for many years. Not only do we not own it, but the standard by which we're judged is not going to be the size of our barns. It will be, did we love God? Did we love God's image in man? And so this man is living as a fool. Did this man realize his inability to cope before a holy God and come through faith in Christ seeking forgiveness and hope? That's what he'll be judged on, not how many times did you expand your barns? How big was your retirement? In Jesus' story, the man gives no thought to God's judgment but only to bigger, better, and more personal enjoyment. Now notice, though, Jesus did not condemn the man for having wealth or even a region of land. Jesus didn't critique him for having a windfall of money or crops. The condemnation didn't come for planning how to use it. All of these things, in fact, exemplify what wise and godly people would do. The wise person lays and makes plans, like the ant, knowing, look, I need to store up for the future. In fact, God normally blesses people like Abraham, like Job, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Solomon. And so none of that was condemning the man. Jesus comes, condemnation comes, not for being rich, 
but for living his life without being oriented to God. Look at the pronouns. Verses 17 and 18, it's my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. The focus is all curved inward. And the seed of greed blossomed into a bumper crop of selfishness and sin described in verse 19. And that really leads to the third way this man lived as a fool. For he didn't work for God or for God's image. Jesus concludes in chapter 12, verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now notice where Jesus didn't stop. He didn't stop by saying, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Storing anything up, that's a sin. It's not what he said. He, God commends saving and planning for the future. The problem occurs when we plan and we save without reference to God. It's sad how in our world people often catch only a glimpse of the truth and not the whole picture. You don't need a Bible to realize possessions don't make you happy. As we've grown with our wealth in our society, we now have problems that other societies didn't have before. Now we literally have more people dealing with obesity than with malnutrition. We have problems of how do I unpack this Tetris-packed storage container and get rid of grandma's stuff? How do I take care of everything that I have? Not, I don't have anything. And so the pendulum, oh, I lived through the Depression. I need to have all this stuff. Swings the other way. Stuff is bad. I need to get rid of it. I need to be a minimalist. You may have heard of Marie Kondo. She's rather famous for helping people to clutter. And one woman even writes, friends speak of her evangelically and how she transformed their lives. Her book even talks of the magic of tidying up. Now, I really have nothing wrong with Marie Kondo, and I'm sure if you're needing to get rid of stuff, she probably has some good tips that you could listen to. However, she is still looking for your possessions to bring you joy. Sure, she is wise to say, we need to choose more wisely, but minimalism is still looking for joy in the creation. Thus, the call here is not to avoid materialism and embrace minimalism. That's not the call at all. The call is to delight in the God who gives all things. You don't get distracted by the stuff. Focus on the one who gives us. And that's why it says by ends by saying, and is not rich towards God. Well, what does that even mean? Well, it means at least two things. And both of these don't necessarily have anything to do with money. You can be rich in money. Or you can be rich in the amount of time you have. Or you can be rich in the amount of energy you have. Or you can be rich in the amount of talents or knowledge. We can be rich in many things outside of money. And whatever riches God has given you, you should use them for God's glory and man's good. And that's really the two ways we're rich towards God. Because first, we live richly toward God when we use our resources for His kingdom. When we joyfully and eagerly give those resources for his church. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about money. Some people will eagerly give their money as long as you don't touch their time, because that's mine. 
I'm not giving you my time. Some people will eagerly give you their time, but don't ask me to use my talents or my resources to help anyone. The greatest gift any person could ever give a church is not tied to a routing number. Always tied to the relationships that you'll build. And we get that confused by our greed. We go, oh, look how much they could give. Only those type of people would be part of our church. You can be the most wealthy, generous person by what relationships you build amongst one another in this body. And that really leads to the second way we live richly toward God, and that is to live richly toward His image. You know, the Bible is very practical about these things. 1 John 3, 17-18, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or deed, word or talk, sorry, but in deed and in truth. Being rich towards God, kind of the opposite of that verse, means you're rich towards God's image, towards people. Yet the man in Jesus' parable only thinks about me, me, me. I will rest. I will eat. I will drink. I will be merry. There's no concern about God. There's no concern for others. What about the workers? Could they now take a rest? Could the workers now drink? Could the workers now be merry? Daryl Bach writes, Wealth towards self is poverty toward God. This man was working for his weekend or more than weekend. He's working for a whole life where everything's a weekend. Always relaxing, always eating, always drinking, always being merry. He was working for himself, not for God, nor for God's image on earth. Here's a verse that I often quote. Sorry, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let the thief no longer steal. So, okay, you're counseling someone. They've been dealing with stealing. What are you going to tell them? Well, no longer steal, but Paul goes on. He says, but rather let him labor. Okay, that's good. Don't steal. Work. Well, why? Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share anyone in need. God's call for us to work is intended not just so we can make sure we have a nicer house, so we can have a better, more secure retirement, so that we can then be a blessing to others. God has given us work to bless. And yes, even bless ourselves, but also be a blessing to others. You know, it's not our money. We don't get to use it however we want. It's God's money. And one of the ways God wants us to use our money is to take care of our needs, but then also to look to the needs of others. You know, throughout time, people will rise in popularity because they'll maybe be a great writer, they'll be a great speaker, they'll have great thoughts. However, in our society, as you get more popular, you start having investors and people who want to do marketing start approaching you, hey, if while you're talking, you all of a sudden stop and give a little infomercial, I'll give you 30 thousand dollars all you got to say is you like these type of hot dogs oh if you do this we'll give you money for that and after a while they can have so many people that people go oh they've sold out they used to say all these things but now so they'll get all the large donations so they can get the larger crowds they've watered down their message they're not as strong in their convictions they've sold out and jesus is saying look we've all sold out to something what 
have you sold out for? Have you sold everything to live for Him? Or are you sold out for myself so that I can eat, drink, and be married? So what is a successful life? What are you aiming for? Uh, I thought about how to conclude the sermon. And you know, there's all these stories of famous people who are wealthy. And they became Christians and they sold all their possessions and gave them away. And those are true and they're powerful. And you know, I think those stories kind of leave a lot of us like, well, that's great for them, but don't really have a whole lot. So I wanted to share two other stories of Howard Hicks, Mama Hartung. You know, Howard worked for decades for Holt Caterpillar in San Antonio. And then when he was getting close to retirement, I said, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'm really looking forward to having more time because there's a lot of old people in our church and they need someone to come fix their stuff and come talk with them. Her mama hard time in her 80s and still we'd go visit her and her great love was her parrots and what are you doing today, Mama Hartung? Oh, the old people, they really need someone to come clean their house. I'm going to come over and help them. Now, is that the only way we're rich, is going and caring for old people? Well, no, young people need to be cared for, and middle-aged people, and all types of people. And yet here are two retired people being rich towards God by being rich towards His image around them, saying, I have a life, I have money, I can do whatever I want, so I'm going to do the best thing. I'm going to love God by loving His people. And yet, Jesus warns. Because this one man, all he can think about, Jesus lays out heaven and hell and he goes, but am I going to get my share here now? And Jesus says, don't be overcome by greed. Watch out. It's a trap. It's a snare. There's something much better than any gift. It's me. Because I have given you all good things. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are enticed. We are tempted to think this thing, this person is going to bring me ultimate joy. And Lord, we do thank you that you've given us many things that do bring us joy, but may they point us to you. May we find our joy in the giver. Lord, we love you and thank you for these reminders because we are so prone to wander. May we, again, delight in you more than all other things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.